0: going. How lovely is it that kids just kept appearing? Wasn't that great? Um, I've just gotten back from uh, a couple of weeks in the States visiting my family, which is really lovely. Um, and what was both cool and a little bit unnerving is that apparently all of my family watches uh, the services here, which is unnerving because I'm like, I got to be careful what stories I share, don't I? Um <laughs> But do you know what was cool is as they kind of reflected, one of the things that they found that they enjoy the most and sense God working through the most is through our young people sharing stories. They say it's just the ability and the innocence of children that brings back a freshness of what we're all here for, what we're about. That Golden Sands and the church really in general isn't a big fancy organization, although we do have elements of organization. We're not a great performance, although we try to do our best on Sundays, but ultimately we are just people called by Jesus to love and serve him, and our children just remind us so well of that. I think Jesus knew what he was talking about when he said the kingdom of heaven belongs to those such as these. So it is great to be back with you today, and um, we're going to be going through the book of Matthew Um, If you have your Bibles, um, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 to 37. Um, Matthew 12, um, verses 22 to 37. We've been going through the gospel of Matthew for probably about the past year and a half, and it's been so good to sit with Jesus and listen to him afresh. I think often we hear a lot of talk about Jesus, but it's real different when you walk with him week by week and hear his teaching over and over again. And so as you're finding that in your Bibles, let me just remind you of the story of Matthew thus far. If you're joining us for the first time today, Matthew's been telling a story, and he's been telling a clear story over the course of the book so far. He starts with the first four chapters, introducing us to the person of Jesus through lineage, through his history, and through some of the first encounters that he has. And then we hear about Jesus's message, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near, And we have the famous Sermon on the Mount where he gives us a picture of what that kingdom looks like in practice. Blessed are the poor, the meek, the merciful, where Jesus calls us to love our enemies and do good to those who hate us as a picture of what the kingdom of heaven looks like. In Matthew 8 and 9, we see Jesus' actions where he's not just talking the talk, but he's walking the walk and going and doing healings and miracles in people's lives. In Matthew 10, he terrifyingly commissions us to do the same thing in a chapter that is both inspiring and terrifying because it's kind of nice for Jesus to do it and it's nice for us to sit back and watch that happen. But for some reason, Jesus continues to choose ordinary people like us to get involved in this big story, which is both awesome and scary. And then finally, in these chapters that we've been at now, we begin to see some of people's responses to Jesus. We had John the Baptist who was a bit unsure because his unmet expectations weren't coming through. We have some of the crowds who their initial reactions is they want Jesus on their terms. They want him to do miracles in the way that they like. And last week, Bernie did a great job walking us through one of the confrontations that Jesus has with the Pharisees, which are like kind of the religious leaders, the political leaders of the time in that region, where they begin to clash over the rules of religion, where they want Jesus to fit in this box, but Jesus continually pushes beyond that. And what's interesting is in in last week's sermon, if you've noticed in the text, things, storm clouds are starting to gather around Jesus. Because for the first time in Matthew, you see the Pharisees say, they begin to plot to kill him. They begin to look away to silence this Jesus who threatens their authority and their establishment. And so with that context, we come into Matthew 12, verses 22 to 37. And if you have your Bibles, why don't you read along with me? And if you need a Bible, we do have paper Bibles that we'd love to give you one. If you've never had one, we would love to give you one. So it says this. Then they brought him, Jesus, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute. And Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. All the people were astonished, and they said, Could this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebul the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. But Jesus knew their thoughts. And he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself won't stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they'll be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man? Then he can plunder his house. Jesus escalates it here and says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Make a tree good, and its fruit will be good, or make a tree bad, and its fruit will be bad, for a tree is recognized by its fruit. You brood of vipers... How can you, who are evil, say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings out evil things of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they've spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Welcome to Golden Sands Baptist. (laughs) Nice and easy, right? Spin on holiday, come back to an easy passage. No, um, it's certainly a challenge, today's text. And so let us pray that God might give us wisdom as we navigate it. Uh, Jesus, we love you. And like the disciples, we often say, whom else could we go to that has the word of life but you? But Jesus, sometimes it is hard to read your words. Sometimes they, they scare us. They might unnerve us. They certainly provoke us. But Jesus, we know that you are good. And we know that you are faithful. We know that you are kind and compassionate. And that you call us to take a yoke that is both easy and light. Jesus, as we navigate your words today, I pray that your spirit would be revealed to us. That we might be able to put our trust and our hope and our faith in you a little bit more. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen amen. So, simple passage, right, guys? Nothing controversial there. Nothing that makes you nervous or make you go, I don't know if you should say that in church, right? It's funny when Jesus says things that you're like, should we preach? Should we say that? I don't know. Um, Today's passage comes and covers one of the most controversial topics in Scripture, where Jesus begins to mention something that has now become known as the unforgivable sin. And I must confess that as a child who grew up in the church and as a teenager who spent a lot of time at youth group, this verse loomed large over my head. Anyone else? Anyone else? Come on, show of hands. Let's be honest. Yes, I see that anxiety and I resonate with it, you know? Um, As a kid, you read that and you're like, I mean, as a kid, it flies over most of your head. But as you get older and as a teenager, I began to read that. And then you start to think, "Uh uh-oh, like I thought it's all good, like God forgives sins but there's like one that he can't forgive. And then you go down the spiral of, did I do it? Did I say it? And then there were moments where I remember sitting in my room, looking at this Bible, being like, what does that mean? If I speak against the Holy Spirit, I'm have I said the words? Does God still love me? And I've had this conversation with people who are new to faith as well. And this can be a really challenging passage for them because many of us come from backgrounds that aren't squeaky clean, Christian life, many of us come from difficult backgrounds. We have experienced radical transformation by the gospel. But before we met Jesus, we lived different lives. And I've talked to many, a new Christian, who when they read this passage, they get pretty nervous because they're like, I've said some rough stuff about God in the past, and I feel like I'm forgiven, but am I not? Is there something that I have done? Are there specific words that I have said that cut me off from the grace of God? It's a tricky passage, isn't it? In fact, there was one commentator when I was doing study, and I've done a healthy amount for this one, Um, this this guy named Ulrich Lutz. Germans always have the best names, don't they? I'm biased because my last name is Gritzmacher, but Germans have great names, Ulrich Lutz. And he is one of the best premier scholars on Matthew. Now, he's probably a little bit more progressive for most of us who are evangelical, but he has written some fantastic commentaries on Matthew. And when he has read this passage, he began to get worried because one of the things that he said is he's able to do some historical surveys. And he says, out of this passage, often no fruits of love have arisen. When he's looked at how the church has often interpreted and used this verse, he's worried that the fruit of love isn't often what this verse brings. In fact, one of his big critiques or his warnings, he did a whole survey. Literally, he looked at 2,000 years of church history and looked at different key leaders and how they interpreted this text. Which, on the one hand, makes me think, God bless academics who've got the time and patience for that, right? I can't imagine reading that much in a row. But he did it. And one of the things that he noticed that he was worried about in churches using this text too lightly is he says that this text was always used to support one's own claims of truth, to the absolutizing or the perfecting of one's church, and to the demolition of one's churches or their mission's enemies. And it must lead to the question of if this text is a good expression of the gospel. So one of the examples that he shared was actually of one of our fathers in the faith, Martin Luther. Um, He's the father of the Reformation in the 1500s. And for most of us in the Protestant tradition, we fuck-a-papa, Back to Martin Luther, in terms of our faith story. And near the end of his life, while Martin Luther was a great guy, he started to go off the rails later in his writings. He wanted to he kind of pioneered some mission work to try and reach out to the Jews that were in his region in Europe. And he tried hard to build different missions and different kind of outreach things, and none of them went over well, and they met with very little success. And what he found is that over time, as very few Jews kind of converted to Christianity, he began to get quite angry and bitter. And in one of his kind of most horrible later writings, he writes this huge polemic, like angry letter against the Jews and uses this text in Matthew as his basic or base text to say why the Jews will never receive, receive salvation why they are cast off and cursed by God. And that passage by Martin Luther has been used by many who have used and raised anti-Semitic voices against Jewish people. So this, this text comes with both personal challenges, but historical challenges of abuse. So it is with great fear and trembling, and also a genuine and real sense of humility that I want to walk us through this passage today. Because I believe that each one of these difficulties, it can be really easy for us to just turn away and be like, a little bit like, Lutz, be like, no, let's just snip that part out of our Bible because it's complicated. But I believe that every moment of doubt or insecurity is an invitation to search deeper. And I believe in the goodness of God and the goodness of Jesus. And I believe that as we engage with this passage and go beyond just the surface reading to the story and the context... That it might show us again the great goodness and mercy of God in our lives. So can I pray again? because it's not an easy passage. Jesus be with us, um, and I pray that your voice, more than anything, would be heard. We hear the warning of "Let's. Let us not use this passage to condemn or slander others, but let us draw it closer to you in greater faithfulness. In Jesus name, I pray. Amen. So Matthew 12, verse 22. One of the dangers when we read big verses like this is we often totally cut them out of their context and read them by themselves. I can't tell you how many people I've read who talk about sin and the dangers of sin, and they jump to this passage in Matthew and just cut out the beginning and the end and just grab Jesus' words about the unforgivable sin. But we have to remember that Jesus was in the middle of a story there was something that prompted this response in him. So if we want to understand what Jesus meant, we got to look at the story in which it came from. Does that make sense? So it starts with this. There's a catalyst. They brought Jesus a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. Now, we don't have a whole lot of time to dive into this, but I do think it's really fascinating for us as modern Western readers to note that throughout the story of Scripture, there is a deep connection— between sickness and spiritual unhealth. In the West, we like to chop those up into be, here's the body, here's the spirit, here's the this. But often they intermingle. And here, the the spiritual oppression that this person was facing also left them physically blinded and deaf. But the goodness of God is that he can treat both our physical and our emotional challenges in a way that is transformative and life-giving. So he heals this person. And all the people were astonished, and they say, could this be the son of David? Now, for those of you who've been in Matthew, can you notice this is different for the first time in a lot of their responses? Often the crowd is doubtful. Just a chapter ago, they were saying, but you don't do miracles the way we want you to. You're not doing it on our terms. But for the first time, the crowd begins to say something they haven't said much in Matthew, which is, could Jesus really be the one? Could Jesus really be the son of David, this Messiah, this Savior that we have been longing for? This is a big deal in Matthew, because normally the crowds are not receptive. The individuals are, but the crowds are not. But here, the crowds begin to turn and begin to have faith. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, It is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. Interesting. Not when the Pharisees see the healing... But when the Pharisees see the people's response to the healing, they rise up to speak. Because what happens is in that confession, is he really the son of David? Their own power and authority is being questioned and taken away. They were the gatekeepers to God. They were the gatekeepers to Torah. And they weren't trying to do it out of a bad heart all the time. I think they genuinely cared. But they had closed these rigid parameters around who could come to God and how could come to God. And when the crowd begins to believe in Jesus, they get scared and insecure. And so, what do they do? They reflexively begin to condemn what's happening. Now, they can't say the healing didn't happen. Everybody saw it. So, what's the best thing they can do? They can try to assassinate the character of the person who does it. Try and convince the people that what they're seeing isn't the good news of God's kingdom breaking out, but it's actually another deception from the devil ready to tear you away from God. It's really cruel. It's really cruel. And so they begin to say, it's only by Beelzebub, which is Lord of the Flies. It's kind of shorthand at that time for the prince of demons, Satan, the ruler of darkness. And now when this happens, this triggers something in Jesus. That response lights a bit of a fire under Jesus where he begins to attack and confront the slander that these Pharisees brought Jesus knew their thoughts, which is not just to say, oh, they got it wrong, but Jesus knew they were trying something underhanded. They were trying to steal faith away from people by lying about what they had seen, using their influence and their power to try and shift people's perception in their favor away from the goodness of God. So Jesus knew their thoughts and he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined and every city or household divided itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he's divided against himself. And how then can his kingdom stand? What's interesting here, Jesus often speaks in parables and riddles, doesn't he? So it's refreshing and interesting that Jesus jumps into cold, hard logic, basically being like, you guys are idiots. Like, that makes no sense. I'm I'm Satan driving out Satan. Well, why would, why would the devil do that? It makes no sense. Any kingdom divided against itself will, will fall. If Satan is making a practice of underdoing his own work, then it's not really that much of a kingdom of darkness, is it? So he just begins to unpack just the illogical nature of what they said. So then, um, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your people drive them out? So this is interesting. Jesus wasn't the only exorcist at the times. That was one of the Pharisees' jobs. When someone was possessed, they would go and often do these huge rituals where they had to find the right name of the demon. They had to say the right words. They had to light the right incense. There was this whole process that they used to try and free someone from demonic possession. And sometimes it happened. But what's different about Jesus is the way that he does it. He doesn't appeal to any of those rituals, any of those practices. It's simply by the authority of who he is that he casts out these demons. And so Jesus is saying, if I'm doing it by Satan, how are your people doing it? Like, it doesn't work both ways. Either it's Satan or it's God, but it can't be both. And then Jesus says, but if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And you begin to focus in on what Jesus is trying to say here. They are using whatever power they can to twist the truth In their favor, away from God's power and God's kingdom. But Jesus is saying, "But if it is by God, then something qualitatively different than anything you've ever imagined is here, and the great kingdom of heaven is here." Now, remember, when Jesus says kingdom of heaven, as modern readers, there's a huge weakness that we often will think of the heaven we go to when we die. So, the kingdom of heaven is here. So, when I die, I can go to heaven, and that's that's true. We will be with Jesus when we depart. But that's not the core of Jesus's message in Matthew. When Jesus says, "Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand," he's saying that the rule and reign of authority of God is coming here on earth, now in and through me. Which means that if God's in charge, nothing else can be in charge. If God is king, then no one else is. If God's rule is happening, then no one else's does. And so it's this confronting story of the way that God wants to do things is going to be different. From other people in authority. Does that make sense? And so Jesus begins to push them and says, the kingdom of God has come upon you. He doubles down again. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, and then he can plunder his house? Again, Jesus is saying, if you want to set people free, you've got to deal with the problem of evil. And that's what Jesus is doing. in in these encounters... Jesus is coming and binding the power of Satan and stealing the treasure from Satan. And who's the treasure in this story? It's us. It's the people that have been captive to horrible systems of injustice, to addictions, broken relationships, to the challenges of sin. Jesus is breaking the power of evil and stealing us back from the kingdom of the enemy. It's powerful and good news So then Jesus escalates it even further. And here's the pinnacle verses we'll spend some time on. And as modern readers, let's be honest, these are not easy verses to read. But Jesus says, after escalating all this, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. Now again, as modern readers, we like to be inclusive and kind. And that passage is a bit confronting for us, isn't it? But remember the framework that Jesus is talking about here. Jesus' whole message is that the kingdom of God is coming. The rule of God is coming now to earth. And earth is going to the, look the way that God wants it to. Whether you like it or not, that's what's happening. And we can see it in the person of Jesus. And so when Jesus is saying, if you're either for me or you're against me, it means this kingdom's coming and you're either going to like it or you won't. And there are plenty of people who really like it. Think of Jesus' Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, the meek, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. To those, the kingdom of God is good news because the systems that break them down and hurt them are being broken themselves, and God is bringing redemption for us. But for those in power or those who have incentives where they are benefiting from these bad systems, these bad structures for those who use corruption for their own financial benefit, for those who hold debts over the poor for their own gain. It's not as good news because that injustice won't be able to continue under the kingdom of God. And so this is the core of what Jesus is saying. God's coming. God's here. And you're going to like it or you're not going to like it. But he's coming. So then Jesus moves forward and here's the challenging passage. And so I tell you, Every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Now, the danger is here: is we read that, and we get nervous, and we think, well, I don't want to do that. And then we start to think, well, I just got to be careful just to not say those words, right? In fact, there's a funny trend it stopped now but about what would have been about 12 years ago when YouTube was still young there was like a big new atheist movement with Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris it was kind of this revival of atheism in the public culture and at that time there was like a YouTube challenge going around for those who were young and who were atheists and the challenge was to film a video of yourself on YouTube and on the on this video on YouTube deny the holy spirit so that you could commit the unforgivable sin and prove you were an atheist. And there were heaps of videos about it. It was kind of like a cool rebellious thing that a kid could do to like fight against their parents is be on YouTube and be like... I mean, sometimes it was sad, but sometimes it was funny, like a you know, 15-year-old like, I don't have the spirit, like so confident, bless his heart. Um, but reading it that way totally misses the spirit of Jesus. The entire Sermon on the Mount is Jesus pushing against strict religious rules. It's saying, just don't cross this line and you'll be okay. Jesus over and over again talks about the condition of our heart, doesn't he? In the last confrontation with the Pharisees, they were upset that Jesus was breaking the rules of Sabbath. And Jesus says, but don't you know why the Sabbath was here? It was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so if we start to read this as, well, there are 15 words that if we utter them in a sequence, we are damned forever. It's just so foreign to the way and the practice of Jesus. So what's happening here? And what you have here, I think, is a story of people using and the challenge who want to redefine good and evil to suit ourselves. The challenge of those who want to call good evil and those who want to call evil good to suit their own benefit. Let me give you an example. This is not a word, but the one you're marking of Russia invading Ukraine. And there was a fascinating moment on that week where in the same day, the leaders of these two heads of state gave a speech. Did anyone watch them or read some of the reports? You did? So interesting. So, so interesting. Because there's one conflict that we're all seeing. A little bit like Jesus with the, the person who was healed of the demon possession. There was one event we all saw, but two very different tellings of what happened. For Putin, he got up and began to talk about how it was the West that started the war. The West were the aggressors who were pushing forward and Russia are just trying to defend their people and their homeland. They said the West are imperializing and colonizing the world, both through ideas and through force. And so it's Putin's job as the defender of the fatherland to defend the Russians in Ukraine, to stand against the fascism of the West and they standing for good. If you listen to Putin in his speech, he is the good guy. The other side is the bad guy. What they do is evil, what we do is good, and all the efforts in Ukraine are for the good of the world. Three hours later, Biden gets up and does a speech. Opposite story. Same event, different story. This is the story that most of us are probably more familiar with, being in a Western country of, well, Putin is obviously the aggressor. Uh, Because Putin is desiring power and influence beyond his means, he's got ideas of reigniting an imperialist Russia state. He's trying to go and steal freedom from the Ukrainians, and there's fighting, and if Russia wanted to, they could stop the fighting. But what's so interesting is one event, but in Biden's telling, we're the good guys, and the Russians are completely the bad guys. And to me, it just reminds us that, A, I'm not here to comment on the rightness or the wrongness. I just want the war to stop. Russia should stop fighting, obviously. But also, let's remember that America's not clean and scot-free. We have flipped five or six different governments for our own benefit. Let's also remember that has given about $14 billion worth of arms and $1 billion worth of aid for the people of Ukraine. So America has incentives to see Russia fall as well. Anyway, that's too political. I'm stopping. Um, but what to me is remarkable is there is something about humans that we can see the same event And we can tell a story to twist it for our own benefit. We are always the good guy in our minds. And the others are always the bad guy. And if we can feel justified in doing that, there is no end to what we can do so long as we feel like the good guy. This is the epitome of what starts in little spaces when it escalates to the leaders of world countries. You get massive wars because people want to define good and evil to suit ourselves. This is one of the core fights of sin. In fact, in the story of the garden, this is the core fight. This is the reason that humanity falls in the Garden of Eden. If you don't know the story, most of you should, but in the story, there are two trees. The Lord God took man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. For when you eat from it, you will certainly die. Man could eat from anything. But this tree that represents the ability to determine good and evil on our terms, to structure the way the world, according to our patterns, God says, don't go there, because it'll end in death for you. What does humanity do? Well, you know the story. A little bit later, now the certain was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? (laughs) which is fascinating the whole time there. Did God really? Anyway, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit from the trees of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. And then you you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and listen, you will be like God, knowing good and evil you will suddenly see yourself the same as God, being able to twist and turn, determine good and evil for yourself, be able to spin things to work for your own benefit. Beware that road leads to destruction. And what does humanity do? Of course, we go and we eat. We're immediately filled with shame. And the story of Genesis is actually how that action, beginning to determine right and wrong for ourselves, leads to a story of chaos in which the whole world is eventually undone in the flood. It is destructive when we try to twist things for ourselves. Another one of my favorite passages that talks about the same heart, because all of us can do that. Does anyone resonate to that? In small little conflicts, in work, in relational challenges, when there's something happened, there's, a, there's a something with any of us that wants to twist the story, so that we get to say we're right and the other person's wrong. Half of marriages fight because both people are convinced they are right and the other person is wrong. And they're so grounded into that. As that escalates, that sin, when it escalates further and further, it begins to undo societies and structures. In Isaiah, one of my favorite passages in Isaiah, Isaiah is warning of people who indulge in this. Isaiah says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up the straw, and as dry grass sinks down to the flames, so their roots will decay and their flowers blow away like dust. Why? Because they have rejected the law of the Lord, the structuring of the world that God has said, and they have spurned the word of the Holy One in Israel. Now, with that passage, let's go back to what the Pharisees had done. The conflict that brought this whole thing about. Jesus, in his goodness and grace, finds someone oppressed by the devil, oppressed in sickness, and is bound, and Jesus sets them free. But the Pharisees, sensing the insecurity of the crowd, now beginning to believe in Jesus, do the same thing that happened in the garden. They begin to call good evil and they call evil good, and they twist a moment for their own selfish gain. And they begin to say, that's not a healing. That itself is Satan. Stay away. And so Jesus is warning them. What happens is when we engage in that behavior, that sin of wanting to twist things for ourselves, make right and wrong about ourselves, that eventually will undo us. And here is where it comes together. Every, t- every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven. Remember the goodness of God in that. We focus on the unforgivable one, but remind that, remember that Jesus says, everything can be forgiven. It reminds us of the goodness and the grace and the love of God. But blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Why? Is it because it's some obtuse rule that God's like, don't cross this one or you're stuffed? No, it's because of the nature of this sin Lots of people were confused about Jesus. John the Baptist was confused about Jesus. The crowds were confused about Jesus, but that didn't alienate them from God. But the Pharisees, their heart had become so cold that when they saw the goodness of the Spirit, God's work in action, they saw not freedom, but they saw Satan. And when the hope of the gospel itself looks like evil to you, then you will never find freedom. Because the Spirit that wants to draw close to you to bring you life, you perceive it as a threat. N.T. Wright describes this so well. In this passage, Jesus is warning against looking at the work of the Spirit and declaring, that must be the devil's doing. If you do that, it's not just that you won't be forgiven, it's that you can't be. Because you would have just cut off the very channel along which forgiveness would have come. Once you declare that the only remaining bottle of water is poisoned, you condemn yourself to dying of thirst. This is what Jesus is trying to warn. When the, when the Pharisees see the goodness of God and they say, no, that's Satan's doing, Jesus says, be careful. You're cutting yourself from the very thing off that would bring you life and hope. The goodness of God's kingdom, you're calling it evil, and that will only lead to destruction. And if you continue to call the goodness of God evil, then when God's kingdom comes, you will run from it, and you will not find redemption, hope. Forgiveness, life, and freedom that the gospel brings. I really like the translation of this passage by The Message. If you know The Message, it's a a translation by a guy named Eugene Peterson, who's one of my favorite authors. And he kind of paraphrases the Bible in his own words. And he does such a good job where he does some of the heavy lifting for us, where he, he rewrites it saying this There is nothing done or said that can't be forgiven. But if you deliberately persist in your slanders against God's Spirit, you're repudiating the very one who forgives. If you reject the Son of Man out of some misunderstanding, the Holy Spirit can forgive you. But when you reject the Holy Spirit, you're sawing off the branch on which you're sitting, severing by your own perversity all connection with the one who forgives. Does that make sense? So this isn't some small mistake that you might make. The the pastoral word that most pastors say, if you're worried about that you've committed the unforgivable sin, the fact that you're worried about it means you certainly haven't. But what Jesus is warning about is a hard heart that wants to continue to to determine good and evil on our own. And if we persist in that behavior, eventually we call the goodness of God evil. And when we call the goodness of God evil and we run from the grace that God offers us, we run from the very thing that brings us hope. And that will lead in destruction. Right now, it's leading to a war across world powers. That leads to destruction in our relationships and our families. So Jesus finishes by doubling down on this saying, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree is recognized by its fruit. Saying, you're wondering what's good and evil. And he tells the crowd, it comes out eventually. Your actions and your words show where you're really at. You brood of vipers using strong language like John the Baptist. How can you who are evil say that anything is good? Jesus again calling out the condition of their hearts. You're trying to be good, but you're calling the goodness of God evil. How can you see any good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. What you're saying reveals the condition of your heart towards the goodness of God. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment. For every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you'll be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned." So what's the message or what's the takeaway from this? It's a warning. Don't run or oppose the goodness of God, but yield to the grace and the mercy of Jesus. There, I think for all of us, I don't know about you, but one of the things that I'm most tempted to is when in uh, conflicts or situations where I'm insecure or scared, or there's a conflict where I don't want to be found out, there is a great temptation for every one of us to want to twist our side to be good and paint the other side as bad to portray ourselves as the hero and we're right and they're wrong defining good and evil on our own terms. But I think this passage would draw us back to remembering to trust in the goodness of God. Confess when you have done wrong. Confess your sins to others and to God, trusting in his mercy and his grace to restore you. You don't need to manipulate moments to say good about you. And let's remind ourselves that in this passage, remember that Jesus, although he says strong words in Matthew, these strong words are never for the, the Gentiles or those outside of faith, the lost and the least. Jesus's condemning words come not to unbelievers, but it comes to us in the church saying, be careful because we in the church are most likely to use our power and our influence to, to keep ourselves safe and abuse others. And that track leads to us cutting ourselves off eventually from the goodness of God. So instead, trust in his goodness and his faithfulness. If you're worried that you have committed this sin, can I bring hope to you today that if you're worried, you're okay. God's grace is great. And his desire to forgive all of us is immense. And one of the great things about resurrection is that God can bring dead things back to life time and time again. And so, if you are worried about things that you might have said or done and you think that's beyond the pale, can I give you a word of hope today to say, all who confess and call on the name of Jesus will be saved. There is nothing dead that he cannot bring back to life, there is nothing broken that he cannot fix. He is good and faithful. But there is a warning for us in the church don't let our hearts grow hard. Don't try and determine good and evil on our own terms and manipulate things that we get to always say what's right or wrong. Trust in Jesus. Confess quickly and watch as his kingdom brings hope. I hope that makes sense. I know it's been a little bit more dense, but I just know so many people who have been weighed by this passage. And I want to remind you of the goodness of Jesus, that even in this encounter with the Pharisees, he's not saying that they are beyond the pale. He's not saying you're stuffed. He's warning them and again, calling them back to trust and confession in the goodness of God. So I want to pray. Um, It's 11.30, we'll finish up here. But I want us to sit for a moment and just invite the Spirit to speak to each of us. I do think it's a really easy tendency for us, like the Pharisees, like Putin and Biden, to want to twist and manipulate situations to suit us maybe there might be something God wants to speak to us that we can confess and place back into trust for him. Let's pray. Jesus, as we have sat with your words, though they are confronting and difficult, they always come with help. And we hear that message that there is nothing said or done that cannot be forgiven. Lord, if there are things in our heart where we are hardening our hearts to you, maybe we are manipulating things to protect ourselves. Maybe we are like Adam and Eve, trying to define good and evil on our own terms that suit us. Lord, if we have engaged in that practice, whether it might be in our workplaces, maybe in our families, maybe in our relationships with our kids or our friends, Lord, I pray that you would bring that up to us. We don't want a hard heart but we want to confess our trust in you. Why don't we just take a moment to wait and see if there's anything God might want to say to you today. Jesus, I thank you that in your word it says that if we confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that you are Lord, then you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us of all the unrighteousness and the sin that so easily corrupts. And so again today we want to confess our need of you. Lord, let us not be a people that twists the truth for our own benefit. Let us beware the mistakes of the Pharisees who went so far that they began to see the goodness of your actions as evil. God, keep our hearts tender and soft. Let us be quick to repent, quick to confess, and quick to trust that Jesus, you are good, that the work of your spirit is good, that you are bringing freedom and hope into our life and into the life of this world. You are breaking down systems of injustice that have kept people under the wheel for so long. Jesus, you are good and faithful. Let us again be a people that can trust in that. Let us trust with both our confession and in our actions. Because you are good, Jesus. And we place our hope and our faith and our trust in you. In your name I pray. Amen.